This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Elisha Anabulili, a postdoctoral research associate at the Texas Biomedical Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Anabulili. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for the invitation. Your study is about looking for zoonotic pathogens using targeted DNA. Remind us first what zoonosis is. Sure. We're talking about zoonosis. Uh, we're referring to diseases that can be transmitted between animals and people. Some of the zoonosis can be caused by viruses, bacteria, fungi, and, of course, parasites. How much of an impact does it have on transmission of pathogens to people? Many pathogens of public health importance uh, result from zoonotic transmissions, uh, including about 61% of known pathogens and 75% of emerging pathogens. If you take laxa fever, for example, uh, which is a, a zoonosis transmitted by rats, recently this year, earlier in this year, there was a report of an outbreak in Nigeria, and over 4,000 cases were reported, and we had about deaths for about 15 to 25% of deaths. In the case of Ebola virus, for example, as well, you know, you could have up to about 60% of those infected and uh, also die. Well, you've just mentioned some. What are some of the other known pathogens that are spread to people by animals? Oh, well, there's like a long list. <laughs> we have, just as I said, the previous two I mentioned, I mentioned Ebola virus and Lassa fever. And we also have the rabies virus, um, the plague, the bed flu. Uh, of course, recently, again, we heard in the news, monkeypox. Now, so the list really goes on. But I noticed on the CDC website that you guys have really done a great job having an A to Z list of most of those zoonotic pathogens, which really helped. Glad to hear that. What are small mammals and how many bad pathogens are there from them? Uh, yeah, so if we talk about small mammals, yeah, we're looking about like a rat, the rodent, and... Yeah, they do transmit a lot of pathogens. And, and though they are relatively benign, most of the pathogens they do transmit, like leptospirosis, but over 60 pathogens transmitted by small mammals are quite are deadly, such as you have you know, the mockingpox, you know, the Lassa fever I mentioned earlier, and hantavirus, and they can really have very high rates, death rates. What part can natural history museums play in studying zoonotic pathogens? I've recently done three other podcasts about specific pathogens found in museum specimens. And I really think this is an interesting topic. Yeah, this is really interesting. Yeah, very important to our study, talking about natural history museums. You know, natural history museums are a critical and underutilized resource for studying pathogens. You know, scientists collect specimens from different fields and they put them into natural history museum collections. And, you know, natural history museums collections hold over 7 million of uh, specimens that have been collected from different countries, different time points. Some even date back to the early 19th century, some of those samples that they have in their collection. So each specimen is really a data point you know, that we can really actually use to understand zoonotic pathogens. So they really play a vital role in understanding zoonotic pathogens. What kinds of tools exist or are needed to dive into these museum specimens and find these pathogens? Well, for the tools, uh, broadly, there are four categories. You know, uh, we have the immunological-based test, and we also have the culturing, culturing test, 
And then you also have visual inspection where you just look at the specimen and you can tell if it's infected or not, and you can sometimes be able to tell which pathogen you have in that particular sample. Then fourthly, we have the nucleic acid that has to do with DNA or RNA. And so the nucleic acid method, which is the DNA method, is really more sensitive, you know, specific, and it provides more genetic information for answering important biological questions such as pathogens, evolution, and epidemiology. So basically, our own study will be actually focused on nucleic acid detection tests. Since these museum specimens can carry dangerous pathogens in their DNA, can they also potentially be dangerous to handle or for people to breathe while they're inspecting them? Yeah, that's really an important question you mentioned here, yeah, because we have one has to be really careful. Now, at, at all times, you know, adequate safety protocol should be followed when handling any kind of biological specimen. And however, there are a wide range of nucleic acid extraction reagents. There are a lot of chemicals we can use when we are going to extract DNA from those samples. So those reagents actually inactivate the pathogens in those samples so that before we start handling them. So once we introduce those pathogens, the, the samples to our reagent, we actually inactivate any bacteria, virus, or parasite in those samples so they make them safe and we can work on them. And that doesn't kill what you need to be looking at, though. Just kills the dangerous part. No, it doesn't damage the DNA. Yeah, it just inactivates and make them not. Yeah, so they cannot infect you and you are safe. Of course, we also work in biosafety cabinet. The all safety protocols are usually on are wearing hand gloves, wearing face shields. But basically, the reagent actually makes them no more pathogenic to to humans handling them. Oh, glad to hear that. I've been wondering about that for a while. Why did you do this study? What was your goal? You know, natural history museums may be the single biggest repository of pathogen data, you know, because they have a lot of collections, as I earlier mentioned. Uh, unfortunately, the major challenge is identifying samples, those specimens in the museum, to identify which of them actually have pathogen. It's quite difficult and expensive. You know, sometimes uh, when these kind of studies are done, Researchers will normally focus on a few pathogen groups. You know, I, I listen to your podcast. Some of those studies, they just focus on certain groups of pathogens, you know, because, yeah, because they usually want to focus on just particular groups. In those cases, what happens is that when they actually focus on a particular pathogen from a sample, they may miss a lot of other pathogens in those samples. So as a result, museums are underutilized when it comes to studying zoonotic pathogens. So we wanted to develop the method yeah, you can actually target more than one pathogen group so that from a single test, you can tell different groups of pathogens that may be present in that particular sample. So to do this, we had to uh, think about uh, the best way to do approach this was to do a DNA a kind of study using a method which we call targeted DNA sequencing, which I will explain uh, later on as we progress. On that note, tell us briefly about how you went about it and what methods were used. Obviously, this is pretty complicated and multi-step process. Yeah, yeah, it's a really complicated head of step, but it's quite simple. So I'll just quickly run through what we actually did. So if you were to extract a DNA from one of these samples we get from the museum, you know, normally they'll send you a tissue, uh, maybe about less than a quarter of a centimeter of tissue will be sent to you from the museum. And normally when you have those tissues from an animal, say from the rat, what you have is mostly the, the rat DNA, the host DNA. And that will be that will form a larger percentage of what you really have. 
and the particle individual fee less than one percent in that particular tissue you have been given. So for our method, we wanted to find a way how you can get rid of the host DNA so that the pathogen presence in that tissue. I want to see how we can really maximize our chances of really detecting pathogen in that particular tissue. So our method, what we actually did was to choose about 32 different pathogen groups. And we listed about 32 different pathogen groups that we are focusing on in this particular study. And for each of these groups, we use some computational tools you know, to look at the genome of these various uh, pathogens. We looked for regions of those genomes that are conserved that can actually distinguish between these different groups. We designed some DNA-based probes, like there are some chemicals that we do, and molecules we designed, which we normally bind to these particular regions of interest that we distinguish each of these groups. So in the second step, what we did was to now extract DNA from this tissue using conventional DNA extraction method. And after we extracted those DNA, we introduced those, uh, the sample to our probe that we designed, and we were able to use it to fish out you know, the pathogens of interest that we have designed for. And after that, we again went back into the computational tools trying to identify which DNA belongs to which pathogen group. So that was how we designed and in the protocol for this particular study. And after all of that, what did you find? What pathogens were identified? First of all, we could show that you can actually enrich uh, the DNA of this pathogen to about uh, two to six thousand fold increase, you know, compared to the host DNA. Remember, I mentioned that the host DNA is a big problem. We want to get rid of the host DNA. So what we're able to prove that, yeah, with a method, you can actually enrich the pathogen of interest, you know, up to about six thousand fold compared to the host DNA. And so we identified about four major groups of pathogens, bacteria, and say bacteria, which are identified plasmodium. You know, the plasmodium is the parasite of malaria, and rhizomia and parabocoidia. So these are some of the pathogens we identified, four major pathogens. Do we know why some pathogens apparently lie dormant for years and then finally transfer to people? Well, yeah, you know, pathogens, we naturally, they will remain in the Host animals, you know, till when anthropogenic factors, when humans or uh, people get in contact uh, with such infected animals. So the pathogens normally you just lie low right there in the animal, their host. But when people get in contact with them, then evolutionary factors can come into play that can make some zoonotic pathogens to make a jump from an animal and subsequently they adapt in people. So, yeah. So, Basically, that is how it, it works. Normally, they just stay dormant in the animal. As long as we keep animals away, we don't interfere with them, everything is fine. But once you begin to interfere with this animal, then there's the possibility of the pathogen jumping from the animal into human or to, to cause uh, infection in people as well. So it's more about proximity than it is about mutation. Yeah, what's looking at is approximating here. Well, as long as we don't interfere, people don't go close to the wild, unnecessarily if you're not protected. You know, of course, scientists, we do interact with uh, animals in the wild, but we're always protected. So, but once you don't have this protection here, you know, putting on the necessary equipment, 
yeah, the very potential if an animal is infected, yeah, they could be a and take one for the animal for the epidemic like that. Were there any surprises in what you found? This is a pretty new area of study looking at museum specimens, I think. Yeah, we were quite surprised to see how many different species of small mammals are host of Bartonella bacteria. I mentioned Bartonella, you know. Bartonella is actually a genus of bacteria that is responsible for Bartonellaensis, you know, in patients, you know, such as uh, the cat scratch disease. And during World War II, a lot of soldiers died as a result of a trench fever that also caused by Bartonella. So we're quite surprised to see that the number of uh, groups of uh, Bartonella was found in the sample. Yeah, there were quite different groups of Bartonella was found. And yeah, one was quite unique to us, which was quite interesting. That we identified this species of Bartonella called Bartonella mastomedi. And it was in a sample that we collected sometime in 2009 in Botswana, in Southern African region. But what is interesting about this particular pathogen is that in 2018, it was described as a new species of Bartonella. So that really, again, emphasizes the need for using museum samples because this sample, this particular species was already in the museum collection. It went back in 2009, but scientists discovered and described it in 2018. So that really was quite interesting to us that, yeah, what really could be hiding in museum samples that we don't know about, what pathogens are there? You know, so that's why it's quite an important question to make use of museum samples to understand the history of pathogens. Are there inherent challenges in looking at museum specimens? Well, yeah, not much of, too much of a challenge, you know, because the major challenge we normally find with museum samples, now most of the studies, the scientists that contribute these samples to museum collection, you know, like historically organized for systematic and taxonomic study of host organisms. So different scientists collect different uh, animals from the wild for different reasons. And when these scientists are not aware of a particular pathogen of interest, so they wouldn't know what sample to collect from those animals they've collected in the wild. So that is a major challenge because at times when we make requests for museum samples, for example, if you take a, let's say, for example, trypanosoma, this is a parasite, and this parasite, most of the time you find it in the, in the brain. So not all museum collections from different animals may have samples specimen from the brain. So that again, that limits what we can really do. So that's a little challenge. So I think what can really help is when uh, pathobiologists and organism biologists can work together, that the pathobiologists can actually inform uh, organism biologists what kind of samples or specimens to collect from the animals that they're investigating. So that will really help those interested in studying pathogens to have the, the right specimen for study or investigating particular pathogens of interest. Which museums did you get your samples from, the ones that you used in your study? We got a sample from, sample from the Natural Science uh, Research Laboratory. It is an arm of the Museum of Texas State University in Lubrock, in Texas. So they provided us with some samples that were collected over 25 years ago from different parts of uh, Southern Africa and some part of Texas and from other parts from in South America. Yeah, so they provided the sample. Are all natural history museums receptive to allowing this kind of study or do some resist it? 
Natural history museums are willing to share samples and specimens, you know, collected by different investigators. Uh, but the criteria for receiving specimen loan requests can vary from museums. So they have different protocols, what you have to fill out, forms you have to fill out. So voucher specimen or tissue samples can be embargoed for study. For example, the depositors might say, well, I don't want anybody to look at the samples at a particular time period. You know, so that can also be one of the factors that can restrict access at some point. But our experience has been that museums are generally excited. You know, they really want scientists to make use of what they have, because they have lots of collection. Why is it important to public health to develop and do these kinds of studies? Yeah, for public health, you know, natural history museums, as I mentioned earlier on, they provide a lot of biological collections, you know, that can be used to document the presence, you know, and the prevalence of zoonotic pathogens in both known and unknown host animals. So they have a huge collection. So if you really want to study pathogens, you want to study the evolution of pathogens, you want to find out if a particular pathogen has been in existence for a long time or a particular location, then the natural history museum they really are the best place to visit to collect samples for study. Samples in natural history museums you know, have been collected from the same location across several decades. If you go to this sample, you can actually tell when is a particular pathogen coming to that particular location. You can be able to track it. So they really provide a vital resource for us. Generally, when you reservoir studies, you know, animals that, that have a pathogen, the vital component of an integrated public health response to establish or emerging zoonotic disease. So that's where they are really of use to us. Going back to the study for a second here, where did you do the initial research before you started looking actually at specimens? This research was done at Texas Biomedical Research Institute here in San Antonio. Uh, it's a non-profit independent research institute based here in San Antonio, and we are dedicated to studying infectious disease. You know, we and our colleagues uh, we study a wide range of pathogens such as Ebola, malaria, tuberculosis, HIV. COVID-19, just to mention a few, and we work to develop therapies and vaccines to help us stay from the disease. That's what Texas Biomed is all about. What do you think should be the next step in furthering your research? Well, for this new you know, study, you know, we are just actually looked at a few samples, just less than 50 samples. We go from the museum. So ideally, we really want to, we really want to look at a large-scale Sampling. You know, there are a lot of museums all over the world with different collections. And to do this, to make this possible, of course, we need funding, you know, to be able to assess more specimens from different museums and across different groups of uh, hosts, you know, different taxa from different geographical locations, you know, and of course, visiting different museums to get different samples. And if we do this, we'll be able to tell we need to get a good picture of different pathogen groups that may be available in different specimens. So scaling up is really what really is our focus at this particular point because our study actually was just a proof of concept that we actually can do this particular study. We can actually detect multiple pathogens from a single test. So we really want to expand this. Where do you work? What areas of disease are you most interested in? And how do they fit in with this study? So we work at also at Texas Biomedical Research Institute and yeah, the King Anderson Genomics Laboratory at Texas Biomedical Institute. So generally in our lab, we work on malaria, 
and we also work on a parasitic disease called Chistosoma. So we do more genomic work on those particular pathogens. But again, we are also interested in developing uh, diagnostic tools, uh, genomic diagnostic tools for identifying pathogens. So that is basically what we do in our own particular lab. Of all the deadly pathogens out there and the new ones you're discovering, like these ones and little mice, is there one that worries you the most? Well, yeah, there's ongoing research, you know, drug development and vaccine for various pathogens that we know about. So what worries me the most is what we don't know, the pathogens we don't know about, you know, there's this talk about pathogen X, but with this X, so which is nobody knows what the next pathogen will be, you know, that will really of, that will be of major concern to us. So I'm really concerned about what is next. And so that is why, again, it's quite important to really emphasize why pathogen surveillance is very critical. And of course, yeah, there's we need funding to be sustained, you know, for us to keep working on this particular area of disease surveillance so that whatever shows up, major truth that those will be ready for it. Sort of like COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 popping up out of nowhere. Yeah, we just have to be ready for villains, you know, keep on the pandemic preparedness, quite important, yeah. And surveillance will go a long way. You know, doing genomic surveillance is a very vital aspect of this particular interest at this particular time. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Anna Bulele. Thank you so much for the time. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the August 2023 article, Prospecting for Zoonotic Pathogens by Using Targeted DNA Enrichment, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.